Welcome to our first ever episode of the PCHD EMS podcast. My name is Jeff McNew. I'm here with our medical director, Dr. Northheim. And from JPS, the Level 1 Trauma Center in Fort Worth, Texas, we have a special guest today, Dr. Raj Gandhi. Dr. Gandhi, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm Raj Gandhi. Um, I work for Acclaim Physician Group, which is under the JPS HealthNet umbrella. And I'm the Trauma Medical Director at John Peter Smith, which is our uh, regional government hospital for Tarrant County. And I've been there over 15 years. So JPS um, was a level two trauma center when I arrived in 2007. And so my charge was to make it a level one. And so we finished that and became officially verified by the American College of Surgeons and designated by the state of Texas January of 2010. Well, that is quite an accomplishment. Thank you very much for joining us. And before I introduce our medical director, I'd like to introduce PCHD EMS. We cover an area of 910 square miles west of Fort Worth, centered around Weatherford, Texas. We have six stations, 11 ambulances, and three rapid response vehicles. We have blood, pericardiocentesis, finger thoracostomy, and ultrasound, thanks to Dr. Northheim. Also, thanks to Dr. Northheim and Best EMS, we have aggressive new protocols and are doing a lot of training with our fire departments. Dr. Northheim, tell us about yourself. Yeah, so I've been involved in EMS since I was 15, um, actually for a service called Life Care back in Cleveland area. Been involved in EMS and the dispatch front and as well as an EMT and then running 911 calls and flight programs. And um, I'm an ER physician at uh, Baylor Scott & White in Grapevine and also McKinney. But um, I'm one of the best EMS med control directors. So we have over 35 agencies uh, in Texas. And so we've been doing a lot of work over the last eight years trying to uh, uh, continue evidence-based protocols and, and hopefully make people better. So we've been here less than a year. Dr. Bertrand's my associate director. And so we've been adding uh, more, uh, more critical skills, which we're able to do because we have Tahoe Concepts, we have critical care paramedics, uh, we have sedation drips, and uh, we just added uh, blood to the protocol as well. Dr. Gandhi's helped out a lot with that, and we're really trying to push the whole blood program as well um, within the rack. So uh, it's been an exciting time. I think, we've, uh, I think we've learned a lot together, and we continue to push the envelope. And so this was the next thing that I thought we probably should do to try to educate others. Yeah, absolutely. And we've had we've had blood for roughly a month, right? And we've given it three times already. Uh, seen some seen some pretty good results with at least one patient that that made a I think it made a difference. So yeah, uh, I think the thing we learned was that we we actually gave blood um, twice for a medical reason for GI bleed, which yeah. um, everyone thinks with that we should be doing for trauma. We get once for trauma, but GI bleeds are another uh, big player for us out here, especially being as far from the hospital as we are. Yeah. So. Um, Part of our aggressive protocols, part of the, the paradigm shift uh, that's been out here is, is actually these checklists. Um, let's go over that real quick uh, before we get into the rest of everything. Yeah, so we're a lighthouse community for Resuscitation Academy. So we were able to go to Seattle a few years ago and we brought back all of a lot of their techniques and then we added on to them. And I think one of the things we learned is that you know, every good system needs a checklist. Pilots use checklists um, in order to uh, you know, cover everything. 
And so we came up with a checklist very similar to Seattle that shows kind of our, our pit crew uh, positioning, a description of each of the um, uh, positions and what they're supposed to do. So at three in the morning, if someone were to forget or we want to make sure that everyone's doing what they're supposed to do and we don't want to forget to hook the O2, uh, the BVM up to the O2 bottle or forget the capnography or potentially forget um, something that may help our patients survive, that we'll have a checklist. And so we actually, when we came back from Resuscitation Academy, we had all of our agencies get together and send leadership and we developed the checklist together. So it was a joint effort. And on top of there, our medical termination of efforts is in there. So if anyone forgets, they can grab the checklist and we kind of store it in our, uh, the pocket where our uh, pads are and our monitor. So it's easily accessible. No one's grabbing a protocol book out. Um, so it looks very professional when they do it. And then when we got back, we realized that we probably needed to hit the trauma arrest piece. And that's what we'll talk more about today is, um, you know, we, we are very good at getting on the chest right away on medical cardiac arrest. And it, should that be the priority on a trauma rush? Should we uh, be focusing on that or should we be focusing our skills, ruling out our H's and T's and doing something about it? So we actually added a quick flow pathway uh, based on blunt. We did based on penetrating to the head and then we did penetrating the body because I think each of those three are very different. And uh, so that's, that's kind of where the checklist came from. But you know, we may talk about this today in two months from now, you know, is when you have the big trauma uh, in the middle of the night or when you're not expecting it. So just to be able to pull this out or have someone unseen, whether it's a first responder, throw it out, a supervisor, someone to grab it and say, hey, let's all get on the same page on this call. And, you know, I've seen on several calls with riding out a very much focused on tibial IOs with low flow rates and giving ACLS drugs and trauma rests and, and on the chest and you have an agency that has ultrasound capability, finger thoracostomy capability, you know, needle decompression is not being completed. We'll even see people come to the ER with blunt trauma and um, a lot of the procedures not being done. And so that's why I thought we need to focus more on it. And I think it's a good educational uh, piece for everyone throughout the country. Yep. So I, I agree with everything. And especially, I love the checklist. I had gone through that just before with you. I think it's spot on to have that. And you and I have spoken before that really the, the advances in trauma care are not going to be in hospital. It's going to be pre-hospital because we, we all know that about a third of the patients die at the scene. And what do they die? They die from head injury. They die from torso injury. And in the torso, there's two big things, bleeding and then pneumothorax or other issues like that. So getting on that chest early on is huge. And I think that's, that's very important. And then we'll talk about, do we need to be doing the CPR part or not in trauma? And, you know, if you look at the literature, there's lots of different papers out there, but they don't none of them are prospective, randomized, double-blinded trials. And so there's a tendency to not have great outcomes, even with CPR. And by that, I mean, you do CPR, you get resuscitation, you know, you get a return of spontaneous circulation, now what? Right. And then either the patient goes on to anoxia or they, you know, are devastated neurologically. Both are horrible outcomes. And so then what, what have you done? Right, and I think the way that I kind of think about it is if you had a blunt trauma patient who was exsanguinating somewhere and you're doing compressions, in my mind, you're probably encouraging them to bleed out faster. So um, in my mind, until you get volume status, you know, addressing airway, addressing the chest, 
Um, to me, that seems to make sense. Um, obviously, blunt trauma has much higher chance of death than a penetrating injury. And penetrating injury, you really know where the injury's at. On blunt, we're always kind of guessing as to, you know, where that injury is. But um, um, that's that's kind of what we focused on. And, uh, you know, I think the checklists do help us get, to kind of stay on task because it, I think it's a very different patient than medical. And then we really throw in there, what about the patient who potentially has a medical event and drives off the road and crashes, right? What, which event caused that? And, and so the crews are going to have to kind of think about, um, you know, does the patient have any signs of trauma? Do we think this was medical first? Do we think it was a traumatic event? But what I was seeing was people that were falling 40 and 50 feet that we clearly knew was trauma or someone that jumped out in front of a car that we really knew was a traumatic event and really giving a lot of epi and giving, you know, compressions and then getting to the hospital and, you know, the tension pneumo wasn't addressed, right? Um, uh, the airway wasn't addressed sufficiently. We didn't think about potentially throwing a pelvic binder on a patient. Um, and, and what I tell my crews is pelvic binder is really not going to hurt anybody. I mean, if you're unsure, let's let's throw it on until we get the x-ray at the hospital. Um, so that's kind of what we've taught, we've taught here. Um, but stopping the bleeding first is obviously the most important thing and then addressing the rest. But, you know, the other thing is that I hear a lot from crews um, when we look at um, uh, trauma patients, especially traumatic injuries to the head, penetrating to the head is, you know, we used to learn in medic school and, and probably, you know, the people that have been in EMS for a long time is um, they have they have brain matters so they're dead, right? And so that's true, but I think we've come a long way with organ donation. Uh, I think crews understanding, you know, that an organ donation patient has to have a, a, a pulse back, right? Or we can do tissue donation after someone's passed away, but true organ donation, we have to get that, that cardiac, um, uh, we have to get the cardiac piece back. And so, you know, there, there's pseudo PEA, which I think a lot of agencies have been kind of slow to educate on. But, you know, if you have a PEA patient and you stick an ultrasound probe and they don't have heart motion, that's a much different patient than sticking an ultrasound probe having heart motion, you just can't feel a pulse. I mean, they're so hypotensive. So in my mind, you would treat those patients totally different. So kind of our general rule is if you have a trauma patient who is pulseless and apneic and asystolic, we're done. We don't work those patients. We don't try to revive those patients. If you have a pulseless and apneic patient who has any rhythm but asystole, we're gonna start getting to work. Um, and if it's a blunt, we have the option to work them for 10 minutes, do our skills and call it. If it's a penetrating the head, same thing. We work them for 10 minutes. We have the ability to call it after 10 minutes if we don't have ROSC. But the penetrating to anywhere but the head, we're going to try to get going quickly, um, do a lot in route, and try to get into a trauma facility as quickly as we can. So on that note, and uh, just kind of curious as to what you guys do over at JPS as well, um, we don't give blood if they're in cardiac arrest. I feel like that would be you know, a waste of, a waste of resources, a waste of, a waste of blood. Once they get back, you know, once we get pulses back, uh, obviously that's when we would consider, you know, giving blood to a traumatic arrest. How aggressive do you guys get with blood when you have a, a trauma arrest roll in? Yeah, that's a great question. So it all depends on what you have, you know, similar to what you're doing in the field, we're going to do an ultrasound and see, okay, what's going on. And if we're not getting anything and, patient has no signs of life and they've had CPR for 15 or more minutes or have been, you know, without CPR, without anything for 15 or more minutes, then we're probably going to stop. And then we don't do anything. If we have cardiac activity, we're going to get to business, right? As you said, we'll do bilateral finger thoracostomies um, and then again, see what else is going on. Um, 
And then what does the patient need at the time? So over the last 10 years, we've had 14 patients that have gone on to resuscitation and been organ donors. And so you say, well, it's only 14 people, but 14 times four, now you're, you're talking 56 people that are alive because of those people or more. So you're do they're donating, what, what, what organs are they donating? So it all depends. So typically we'll get kidneys, liver, mm -hmm. lungs, heart. We, we actually have gotten several hearts even after a cardiac arrest, wow. believe it or not. Um, and, but certainly those are great to be able to get all the organs that they get. Life-changing, life yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think we did have one pancreatic transplant, and uh, I think that was it. Yeah, so I think if you think about something that, you know, say a gunshot wound to the head that's uh, self-inflicted and obviously the family, the grieving, um, but if you could take it a step further and say, yes, it's a horrible event, but, you know, instead of just calling it on scene and we did get a heartbeat back, right? Who's that patient helping down the road? Can the family maybe rest a little bit easier knowing that their loved one did help somebody else? And mm -hmm. so that's why I encourage EMS in the field, not just to use the brain matter, but to think about, hey, listen, you know, let's look at pseudo PEA. Maybe they're just so hypotensive that maybe if we could, you know, pack the wound, maybe if we could give some volume, uh, maybe try to get the patient back from a cardiac perspective that you may have a fairly young individual with lots of potential to donate. And I think we've seen that several times that, um, you know, let's take the extra time. And, and of course on the CPR thing, you know, we're just saying, let's focus on your skills first. I think the data on CPR is back and forth, but you know, if you're going to transport after you get all your procedures done, I think it's fine to do compressions. Obviously, I think it's fine to do compressions on somebody with a isolated, uh, you know, penetrating to the head. Um, but our, our point is, let's not get into the ER and not do all of our H's and T rule-out procedures, but let's just do compressions, right? So let's do the compressions after we've tried those things. And that's kind of our big push. And I think that's, that's working well at our facilities and our agencies. It's, it's definitely been a, uh, a real culture shock for us because, I mean, we're used to, you know, if we're going to transport somebody like that, just throw them in the ambulance and, and go in quickly. But now we're getting to the point where it's like, okay, you know, let's get some stuff knocked out. Let's spend 10 minutes here and really, really hopefully give this patient a chance. And uh, something I remember you saying recently about, you know, penetrating trauma to the head. If you're doing CPR and you're pushing brain matter and blood out of their head, stop that from happening first. You know, wrap it up, do something to keep their blood volume in their body. Right. And then you can do CPR, but... Don't don't push the uh, don't push the fluid and brain matter out. So exactly, I think that's something across EMS that we're doing a better job is is staying on scene, working that patient. I think the ones I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the ones I think we really need to get going on is the penetrating to the body. I mean, where we know where the injury is at, where we can get them to an ED, where we could potentially do a thoracotomy, get them to the OR. I think those are the patients that we probably need to load and go and do most of the procedures and route. Um, but the isolated of the heads and until we really get a pulse back, the blunts until we really get a pulse back. I mean, I think, I think we're fine to stay unseen. So. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, you had said about 10 minutes. I think that's, that's a, a reasonable time frame. Um, and for us, when we get the, the patients who have gunshot to the heads for whatever reason, um, we do the same kind of thing. You know, we'll, if they have cardiac activity, we'll resuscitate. So at that time, we'll give blood FFP and see where we're at. And, you know, if, if we're not getting anywhere, then we will stop.
right? We, we have limitations. So blood is a very valuable resource and scarce resource for us. And so we want to be good stewards of our blood resource. So we're not, you know, giving a hundred units of blood. Absolutely. And, you know, our regional bank has a thousand units of blood available. So, right. so with our, uh, with our uh, deployment of blood on our Tahoes, we've actually started a partnership with Carter Blood Care. We have a sponsor code and a lot of our employees have started, you know, donating. Uh, and I think, I think we're going to actually, you know, pass or go over the amount of blood that we're carrying uh, that's provided just by our employees. So it's been really cool. Um, we may not see our actual units of blood on our ambulances or on our Tahoes, but uh, we actually have the ability to give give the blood that we're giving kind of. And uh, I, I think it's been pretty cool because it is a scarce resource. But when you get people involved uh, in their own communities, it's there's so much more buy-in because it's like I'm giving blood that my neighbor or, you know, this guy down the street, if he gets hit by a car, you know, has a has a GI bleed could could also get and could save somebody's life that I actually know. It's it's people are more likely to give if they have buy-in. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a great point. And certainly we had a meeting with Carter yesterday to talk about whole blood and kind of as we talked about the evolutionary process. And and so I think there are more and some of their concerns about leuco depleted whole blood and all of that. So we 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 showed them some more data. And so we'll let them take a look at it and then we'll push it again. So, you know, I. We've we've talked. Where do we want to get to? Well, we already know in our minds where we want to get to down the line. It's just what does that process looks like? What does that evolution look like? And obviously, we're not going to wait hundreds of years. We're going to kind of keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing. Um, but certainly, that effect, as you just put out very nicely, is huge to get buy-in from the blood banks. Yeah. And that, again, that was one of the things. Now, actually, um, the director for Carter actually said that very thing in our meeting. Yeah, I think the thing was with COVID, I mean, they had depletion of blood. It was hard to get blood. And so I think their point was, hey, we don't have a bunch of units just sitting on, uh, you know, EMS units or fire units throughout the, throughout the state. And I think what we've showed them is that, you know, our donation ability across the first responder entity, across, you know, the county, across the city um, can be fairly strong. And those are maybe people that wouldn't have donated otherwise, but they know that they're supporting their agency, they're supporting their county and their city. And so I think that's something that um, Carter's realized will be very beneficial for them. Yeah, I hope so. And obviously you're talking about getting to low tide or whole blood, correct? I mean, right. Yeah. So that's what we're using now. And so we had a symposium a week ago, Friday, so October 28th, and we had a speaker from Houston, Brian Cotton. So Brian's a trauma surgeon down there. He's very much into the blood resuscitation. And he's one of two people in the country that are true super experts. And so he went through all the data about, do we need to do, you know, uh, low titer? Can we do regular or high? Um, and actually, it's almost like there's a benefit if you do the high titer. So showing that to them makes it so that there may be more accessibility to whole blood rather than just wait for that specific type. And then we also talked about, well, what about O positive versus O negative, right? Because normally we want O negative so we can just give it to anybody. 
But how about O positive? Can we do that? Well, you can. You can give it to men. You can give it to women over 50, 55 years of age who aren't going to be having babies. And even if you give it to a young person that's a woman, um, and if they're pregnant, you can go ahead and give the Rogan. So you have options depending on what you have available. So I think that's really important. Yeah, I think it's kind of like sticking your foot in the water. We got to stick our foot in the water and explore it and get more data. I mean, I think that's something that our, our rack is doing and we're doing as facilities is really just trying to get more data. You know, how many agencies would be willing to spend the money to carry it? It's a big deal because it, it costs money to carry it. You know, how many agencies have, have something set up where they could potentially put it on a squad concept, right? And so if you have a, if you have a city with eight or nine ambulances, it's probably not going to be cost effective to do that, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if you had a squad concept, Tahoe concept, it becomes a little more cost effective to do that. Obviously, the longer your transport time, you know, the, I think the better it's going to be for the patient. And then, you know, there are a lot of the air medicals that carry it. And we, you know, out here, if we have weather, we have a, long, a lot longer time with our patients taking care of somebody who's, you know, potentially hypovolemic than, than even the air people would, right? Yeah. So there, there's a benefit to our patients to carry it. So uh, more to come on that. We'll probably have a separate episode on that. But um, we, we have gone down that road. We've talked about... Um Kind of the general stuff. What what specific treatments do you guys typically do if EMS is really just you know throwing somebody on the stretcher, brought them in, and then you know hopefully within you're you're within ten minutes of the patient actually going into arrest. What does the first you know ten minutes in your ER look like for somebody that's had a blunt trauma arrest? Yeah. So great question. So we're actually looking at good, bad, or ugly, and if it's ugly. Do they need to go to the operating room or do they need to stay in the trauma bay? And if they need to go to the operating room, we go straight there because we have everything there, right? We have anesthesia who can intubate. We have other people who can get big lines in. That's, that's as a surgeon, that, that's kind of my happy place, right? I can, I've got everything there. I know it's a safe place. I got light. I got plenty of resources. I've got several nurses. I've got a scrub tech. We have anesthesia taking care of the head. And, and so you have all of these other resources. And it's not to say our emergency medicine physicians are, are not good. No, they're awesome. You know, they can intubate and under circumstances that maybe an anesthesiologist cannot. Um, however, we're looking at stopping the bleeding. And I can't do that in the trauma bay. So... That, that's kind of the first thing. And that happens in the first two minutes, really? give or take. Um, and if it does, then I pick up the phone and I say, hi, this is Gandhi. I need to take this patient to the operating room now. What OR am I going to go to? And they'll say OR9. And then I go straight up to OR9. And we took that little trip. And you know, it's yeah. not that far. No, it's quick. But by the time we get to the operating room, they're ready. Anesthesia is ready. The nurses are ready. The equipment is ready. The, the other, so let's say if it's kind of bad, right? Then we'll see, okay, do they need a little resuscitation before we intubate them or do they need to be intubated? What's going on? And certainly if you've got a patient who's flailing around, you have absolutely no control, guess what? You're going to have to get control. Yeah. If you don't have IV access, then you may give them IM ketamine, 200 milligrams. That'll bring them down. And then intubate and do whatever else or get IV access and then go from there. So I think it always depends on that patient and what we think is going on. 
I think that's been a big push across our system, especially out here, is we're trying to fill the tank before intubating as well, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of incidents probably in the past of, you know, peri-intubation arrest, especially in someone who's hypotensive. And you think about somebody who's got a pressure of 70, if you stick a laryngoscope blade in their mouth, what's gonna happen to their pressure? They're gonna vagal down, probably gonna lose it. You're not gonna feel it, obviously. It could be those pseudo PEA patients we're talking about. So I think we've pushed really across our system is, you know, fill the tank. If you need a little push dose pressure, give blood, give volume, you know, think about not going tibial on the IOs if you're gonna go tibial. I mean, let's go distal femur, let's go, you know, proximal humeral, we've made a big push on that. Um, tibial is really our last resort now, but, you know, let's give five liter per hour access versus one liter per hour in the tibial. Let's, let's have the ability to give our meds, to give our RSI drugs if we need to. But I think, you know, just like trying to get our patient oxygenated for us over 94% before we hit the paralytic, let's also try to build our blood pressure up. Let's equilibrate the patient as best we can. Maybe throw the pelvic binder on, right? Maybe give a dose of TXA, all this stuff together to try to get the patient so we can have success and the patient doesn't code. And you know, we've probably seen that a lot in the in the ER. Mm -hmm. We've seen that a lot with EMS where you know they go to, to the airway without waiting and that patient codes. So Yeah, and the AAST, so American Association for the Surgery of trauma just put out a publication that basically says exactly that. And I believe that the next version of the American uh, Advanced Trauma Life Support course will have that you actually do cardiac, meaning make sure you have a blood pressure before airway for that very reason. Right. So I want to I want to touch on something you said, because I think it's something that EMS really struggles with. I know I've been in the same boat before. You said if you don't have if you don't have control of the patient, you have to do that before you do anything else. Before you take somebody to the OR, you're going to RSI them. Um, I think that we have this urge that's just like, if we could just get to the hospital doors, they're going to be okay. You know what I mean? Like, if we could just get them in front of you, they're going to be okay. And so sometimes EMS crews forego intubating. You know, like, hey, you know what? Yeah, he's combative. Yeah, he's, you know, had a head injury. Obviously, is going to be intubated as soon as we get to the hospital, but let's just get him there so he doesn't die. And if that's something that we're able to do without killing them, you know, if they have the blood pressure at that time to sustain it, that's probably the perfect time to do it as opposed to, you know, we, we wait 20 minutes or for us, uh, our average transport time to Fort Worth is 34 minutes. So if we wait 34 minutes, somebody who has a belly bleed and is combative is not going to have a normal blood pressure by the time you see them. And so you're going to have to be, you know, doing all of this stuff before you even get an airway. We need, we need to be doing that before we get to you. And, and we really tried to push that. Yeah, I think the, the two big studies each had 10,000 patients that were done pre-hospital for intubation showed that, you know, the, the outcomes were better with intubation in the emergency department versus pre-hospital. The problem with those studies is if you look at the time frame, it was short, right? Because it was mostly big, big city style. Urban environment. Yeah. And so what you say is very true. Um, you're in a little bit different situation because 34 minutes is more than half of that first golden hour, right? Okay. And so, you know, a lot of it has to do with what you have. And so what do you have? And what, what do you need to do to keep that patient alive before getting to us? 
Yeah, and I, would, and I would also argue some of the studies on intubation by EMS, I think it really depends on, you know, your first pass rates. I think it depends on any complications you may have. I mean, there's certainly agencies who are a lot better first pass than others. There's certain that have, you know, certain agencies who have a higher, you know, complication rate, maybe, maybe um, you know, uh, uh, peri-intubation arrest, higher percentage. So, you know, I think that depends, and I, I don't know how you kind of, how you look at that because I've seen those studies but then I also think wow if that patient comes to me the first thing we're going to do is we're going to intubate the patient right and so if you feel comfortable with your with your service and you feel comfortable with their with their skill set it seems like that's probably a better thing to do if we're going to do it when they get there anyway right yeah, so it's very dependent on I think on the agency yeah your your point is spot on and I think those studies need to be repeated because if you read it to me it was a bias going in like when I saw, I read the intro in the background, I was like, I know what this is going to say. I bet if those studies are repeated now, the outcomes will be different. Yeah, and especially if it's, if it's larger than or greater than a 10 minute time frame to yeah. transport. Depending on, yeah, if you're a high functioning, you know, RSI type. A couple of our clinical agency. supervisors have been teaching an airway class here over the last few years. I, we actually uh, are going to put it out kind of in podcast form. But we've seen our numbers go up. We're at 94% first pass success rate right now. We have video laryngoscopes. Um, you know, depending on the situation, if you can do it safely, um, you may not even need to pull over to, to do an innovation. Um, I know we've done that several times where, you know, we have the interstate. Uh, it's fairly smooth. If you're able to, you know, sit safely in the captain's chair, you know, you can perform an innovation with two providers in the back fairly easily while you're going down the road. So there's, there's virtually no delay. And, uh, and I think your overall rates are 100%, right? So yeah, exactly. those, those, are, those are tremendous numbers. And, and if we are doing CPR on a medical cardiac arrest, we're not stopping compressions to do it, right? right? So it, it makes the airway tougher, but it's better for the patient. So that's another thing that obviously we stress. We're not, you know, we're doing medical and intubating. We're not stopping. So. Well, and technology is huge, right? You mentioned the GlideScope. That was not there when these studies were done. Right. So... You know, if you had that, if you had all this training and everything else that's happened after those two studies came out, I, I think you'd have a very different outcome in studies if we were to do it now. From here, we start talking about EMS's use of ultrasound, doing fast exams, and activating the OR from the field. Yeah, I think the important part, too, is... You know, say, say an agency brings you a blunt trauma patient and they've already darted or bilateral fingers are done. Maybe they've done a pericardial fits their protocols. They have an airway established. They've given volume. What's the first thing we're going to do in the ER? Maybe we're going to stick an ultrasound probe. And if there's no heart motion, you know, we're going to, we're going to be done. So um, I think that's important for, for people to note. Um, I, I think ultrasound is a huge piece of what we do uh, on a daily basis. I think it's a huge part for EMS. I think if you trust the agency and you trust their skill, you know, and we know they're going to be taken care of and, and probably their tank is going to be filled and we have procedures done and we have airway intact and the patient's sedated, that's an easy patient. That's like a, you know, it's like uh, going right going right to the OR, just like going to the cath lab, right? Yeah, so, that's exactly right. But you have and to have that trust with your agency, make sure that, you know, the training is there. So Yeah. And, you know, whether... Whether that scan, and the only reason for the scan, what I'd like to do is get to exactly where you're getting at is the paramedic is calling and saying, hey, this guy is not just a level of trauma, but he's a level one trauma OR, which means we'll just go straight to the operating room. 
There are a few centers across the country that actually have an operating room in the emergency department. And so they would go right into that room. And we don't, but as you saw, our OR is not far. It's we go pretty, pretty quick up there. So, but I think it can be a number of different ways, but once you get that and we know, and you say, this is a level one OR, blood pressure is 70, fluid in the right upper quadrant, left upper quadrant, whatever. Um, after, you know, in the rest of the history, we know, okay, yeah, we're, we're going to be lapping them. So let's get going. Get so, ready. and, you know, the other aspect of that is it's really important. If we go to the operating room um, and lap them, we can get their blood, we can cell save it, give it back to them. So there, there's a lot of different processes that can be kind of put in force because we have that pre-hospital thought process and real verification of that bleeding. Well, plus you'll have, have time. I mean, if we could do that from a county level, I mean, you're going to have 30 minutes to get ready. Yeah. And your OR team's going to be ready. And so everyone's going to be ready to go. So just like we know with, with, you know, stroke patients and with STEMI patients, I mean, the quicker we can activate those patients, get the CT table cleared, get the cath team in, all those things make a big difference with patient survivability mm -hmm. and outcome. I think, you know, talking about ultrasound as well, I can't tell you how many times I've worked on somebody that I knew wasn't going to make it, but I had no tool to tell me like definitively this person is, not, you know, my protocol said, hey, you got to work this. I didn't have that sono be like, look, there's no cardiac motion. We've been doing this for, you know, we've given 27 epis, like they're not making it. We spend an hour, blood, sweat, and tears, get to the hospital. You guys pull out a, an ultrasound, time of death. That is just, that. that is such a defeating feeling. It's like, if we just had that tool, we could have saved the family a, you know, transport bill. We could have saved, you know, an ambulance from being out of service for two hours. Just for, the safety of the crew. I mean, absolutely. you think about these patients, and we talked more about that in another podcast, but, you know, why are we necessarily taking you know, medical arrest without a pulse, you know, to the hospital lights and sirens. We have a Lucas device, right? We, we have, most of us have vents. I mean, do we really need to save that extra three minutes with someone who doesn't have a pulse, right? And so your the safety of the crew is important too. I mean, to have that tool, the ultrasound, and, and you know, it's just gonna take reps to get to the point that that will be part of our termination criteria. And just to be clear, we don't get 27 MPs. We max out it. We max out at three for medical. <laughs> but, uh, that, was a, that was historical. But very, uh, very good point. Very good point. But if anyone wants, uh, you know, copies of our checklist, we're happy to share that. Um, so you can you can contact us us via um, social media or Parker County Hospital District or Best EMS. I just got a whole bunch of them ordered, so we're about to we're about to hand out. It's great for your first responding here. entities as well. So if you you know work with the fire department, uh, it's a great piece to have. But you know, I think it's it's not very much fun to get on a case and have to pull out your protocol book during a critical case. So this kind of adds a little more professional nature to it. Uh, Seattle gave us the idea and we kind of took it and ran and um, added even our ECMO criteria in there as well because it's, it's kind of hard to remember that uh, when everything's going down as well. And but it's a great tool to have to kind of absolutely give you a little crutch when you, when you forget what well, we just talked about. Not, not only that, but, uh, you know, we all have our phones now and we've got protocols on our phones. but. I actually think this looks a lot more professional. Well, thanks, Dr. Gandhi. It's always thank great to you. have you. Good Appreciate to see it. you, yeah. Dr. North. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Jeff, thank you guys for you. being on. Um, hopefully, uh, hopefully we have you back, and uh, we're going to have a lot more episodes. So, I mean, definitely, uh, definitely stay tuned.
This has been an episode of the PCHD EMS podcast. Thank you for joining us.